Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome to another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Bean and I are both uh, cannabis journalists and media makers, and this is kind of our world. So on this show, we take you down some of the more interesting stories in the very, very long history of human beings and cannabis, a history that goes back thousands of years. And I have no prior knowledge of any of the stories. Bean has done the research, and he's going to be telling me. And I'm just going to be reacting, rolling J's. We're going to smoke. We're going to have some tea, have a few laughs, and learn a little something about the history of cannabis. So, Bean, what do you got for us today? Oh, we have a really, really amazing story today. It it's, takes place starting in 1946, so an interesting time for cannabis. Uh, federal prohibitions less than 10 years old at that point. Not that many. Full yeah, full swing. Um, and what's interesting about the story today, before we get into it, is it, it's kind of a it's about a very well-known person, a very famous person, a deservedly uh, uh, glorified person that a lot of people look up to. And it's more of a personal great moment. It's a great moment in her life uh, with cannabis. Uh, so it's, it's – it's, and I think that's a valid way to think of great moments in cannabis because um, we'll get into it. But we may never have come to know of this person if not for this personal uh, great moment. Have you ever kind of had a moment with with cannabis where it it, 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 it changed the trajectory you were on in your life in, in a profound way or? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, <clears throat> I was, uh, I had an injury when I was 22. Uh, you know, my shoulder was completely fucked up. I had all kinds of nerve damage. And, uh, you know, I had been attacked by a mugger, you know, essentially had been stabbed in the throat. And it not only caused a lot of damage, but, uh, you know, also psychologically, it was a really traumatic event, you know. So after that, you know, I was uh, sort of holed up for a long time. You know what I mean? It didn't really want to go outside. And, you know, I already used a lot of cannabis and, you know, was a big fan of it. So, you know, just to sort of keep myself entertained and sane, I smoked a lot of cannabis and unknowingly I was treating my own PTSD and also, you know, later we found out about the neuroprotective, neuroregenerative capabilities of cannabis. And, you know, I have like full use of my shoulder now. I was essentially paralyzed. And, you know, my physical therapist and neurosurgeon were both shocked as to my progress, you know. And now I find out that that was really cannabis behind it all. And, uh, you know, all of that sort of congealed with why it became my life's work, my career, you know, so it's like, uh, yeah, that was personally my, you know, breakthrough with cannabis. And so I guess my point is you would say, like, that's a great moment in weed history for you. Yeah. You know, my weed history. Y yeah. And so that's kind of, you know, I, I think uh, that's the way we should look at it. I have moments like that in my own life. I'm sure people listening can can point to that, too, if you really care about it. Yeah. There are great moments. Oh, absolutely. And like that's what, you know, cannabis is about. It's about not only the larger trends and, you know, big epic happenings, but also the private moments. You know, the your relationship with the plant is a sacred one as an individual. Yeah, man. If you if you spend the night just laughing, believe me, as you get older uh, and you look back on those times when it's you and your friends and you're smoking and you're laughing, those are good times. And oh, you yeah. could go around the world and you could be a big shot, but there's a lot of things that are fancier than that, but that are not more fun. That is 100% true. I think, you know, sometimes the the shadowy nature of smoking cannabis as a youth or, you know, using it with that small 
exclusive group of people who are in on this little secret, you know, it's one of the little byproducts of prohibition culture that creates close bonds among people, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, somebody initiates you into that little world, which uh, is is a little bit of this great moment, actually. Oh. I, I hear the the telltale crinkling of our of our uh, entrance joint. Yes, and that means that it's time to delve into this great moment in weed history. Take it away, Bean. All right. Well, we're uh, just about rolled up and ready to go. If you need to hit pause and uh, roll something or pack something. or Yeah. And listen to this rendition of uh, Bad Moon by the Creedence Clearwater Revival. And we'll cut that in right to you. Okay. Turns out you've got you to supply that yourself. Uh, we're not going to pay the license, but, but listen to it's it while you It's on Spotify, roll. people. Just find it yeah. and <laughs> play it. It's 2000, whatever. You know how to do this. Beginning our, our, our great moment in weed history. Let's do it. Famed poet, memoirist, and civil rights activist Maya Angelou was awarded the Presidential Medal of Arts in 2000 and the Lincoln Medal in 2008. Maya Angelou, a total badass, absolutely incredible wordsmith, and also went to the White House when Obama was there, right? Which is like so gangster to think about. Um, but yeah, no, that's, I'm stoked, man. Maya Angelou, that's fantastic. Did not know that she had a cannabis story, but I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it's a really touching one. Um, she was the recipient. Uh, are we just going to big up her a little bit before we, before we dig in? Let's hear it. Um, she was the recipient of over 50 honorary degrees, won three Grammys, not shabby. How many, how many Grammys you got? Uh, two, but you know, Angelou has me beat by one. Yeah, and you said you were going to, that's why you stopped putting out music out of your respect for I'm never going to. Yeah, I was like, I don't want anyone. Nah, it's a bad look for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so she won three Grammys and was only the second person in U.S. history to read a poem at a presidential inauguration. Badass. Total badass. Um, Dr. Seuss was the first. No kidding. Kidding. Oh. <laughs> Another national treasure, though. I'm definitely a friend of the show, friend yeah. of the podcast. If he's a national treasure, is he American? Maybe, I don't know. But yes, I, probably, is I he think a doctor? so. I got my medical cannabis uh, recommendation from Dr. Seuss, yeah, so right? I hope he is. Uh, he's the one who's not, and he's it was, like. It's hilarious. He's like, whether you like it or not, this person <laughs> needs pot. <laughs> 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 indeed, by indeed. Joint, this person needs weed. <laughs> Whether by joint or by bong, <laughs> you must give him song. Okay, well, that's why he. Yeah, that's why he was so successful. It's, yeah. it's hard. It's harder than it looks. Mm-hmm. Whew. Um, so she's uh, accomplished all of these uh, things. She has uh, passed on now, but she accomplished all these things in her life. But her first and most famous book. The best-selling memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, wasn't published until she was in her 40s. No kidding. And this is a book that like a lot of people have read in high school literature or college. And it's kind of like, this is like a staple 
you know? Yeah, it's, you know, one of the defining works of uh, 20th century literature, I'd say, <clears throat> yeah. certainly in the United States. Yeah, and little spoiler, she knows why the caged bird sings. Never tells you in the book, though. Never find out. <laughs> There's no actual reveal on that. But no, but seriously, I mean, that's that's one to check out. Before that, Angelou held down all kinds of jobs. Fry cook, sex worker, the first black female streetcar conductor in San Francisco, cast member in the opera Porgy and Bess on Broadway, organizer for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She even worked as a journalist and an academic in Ghana. Wow. So she could not sit still. And I mean, that's you kind of see that, I think that kind of perspective in her work. You know what I mean? This is this is a pretty worldly person. And being, being a black woman at this time, it's not easy to, you know, get around the world uh, or see as much as she did. But, you know, wow, I mean, it clearly reflects in her work. And who knew she smoked cannabis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not And, and this is all the things I just rattled off were all jobs she had before she was famous. So it's not like... Um, I'm sure yeah. that influenced her work for the rest of her life, but absolutely. Yeah. And then just to skip ahead a little bit, some of her later film credits, uh, she appeared. This is all true. Uh, she appeared in Tyler Perry's Medea's Family Reunion. Get out! <laughs> I've not seen any Tyler Perry movie. Actually, I don't think I don't think I've ever seen a Tyler Perry movie. But that that's that makes sense, you know. It makes sense that he would have black icons in his movies. Did not yeah. know that she did that before she died. She must have been old. Um, yes, she, I, she narrated Elmo Saves Christmas. Wow. Holy shit. <laughs> That's far too epic of a voice for Elmo <laughs> Saves Christmas. There's a profundity to Maya Angelou's sort of cadence and tone, you yeah, know? I think it tells you a lot about how writers are treated in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got the perfect project for you. Uh, uh, civil oh rights God. icon and uh, acclaimed uh, writer. Yeah. You, you, gonna, you ever heard of this guy, Elmo? And she was like, I'll do it. You know? And she was on Sesame Street a bunch of times. Right. That I've seen clips yeah, of. Yeah, those are awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a, a good full life. Yeah. Um, but g- getting back to the beginning. So she was born Rita Johnson in uh, Stamps, Arkansas in 1928. Uh, And she grew up in pretty difficult circumstances. Her parents, in her words, calamitous marriage ended in divorce early in her life. And as a result, she was shuttled back and forth between them and occasionally her grandparents. When she was still a child, one of her mother's boyfriends sexually abused her. Jesus. Yeah. Um, So she told her brother and the man was eventually convicted of the crime, but he only served one day in prison. Oh, man. And then less... Then a week after his release, that man that abused her was violently killed, uh, possibly by her uncle. And she was a she was a young child. She was holy shit. Yeah. Wow. That is a tumultuous childhood to say the least. You know? Yeah. Well, so after the killing, uh, she didn't speak out loud one word for five years. Whoa. Um, she uh, felt that she had spoken out. And this man was killed and she was a child, you know, young. And um, Oh, my God. What an incredibly tragic and poetic origin story for, you know, such a renowned poet. And It's incredible. Yeah, the trauma of that. So, um, so during this time is when she turns inward and she becomes a very, very avid reader. So she doesn't talk to anybody. 
um, but she's just reading all these all these books, and she's um, and so all all this and much more is covered in I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, her first of five memoirs, uh, which spans the period up until she turns seventeen. Cannabis rather gloriously enters the picture in the second installment of her life story, gathered together uh, in my name. Okay, so this is basically she hasn't used cannabis, you know, throughout her childhood, adolescent years. It's really when she becomes an adult. And I'm guessing it had something to do with her entry into, you know, the world of the creative world of artists and poets of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes, all of that is accurate. Um, She she so she this is in the second book. She opens that book in 1946 with a description of her life as an 18-year-old single mother in San Diego, where she worked as a waitress and held an understandably grim view of life and humanity. Um, So, you know, the first book is a lot about this trauma in her childhood, and and now she's coming out of it. She's living on her own. She has a child, um, but she's has a grim view of humanity. She's down on the world. You know, yeah, and, and understandably. As, yeah, as anyone would be uh, under those kinds of personal and social and, you know, circumstances, you know? Yeah. So that, at least, you know, she had this grim view. Uh, at least that's how she saw things until the fateful night two lesbian prostitutes who frequented the bar where she served drinks invited her to their house for dinner. A life-changing social call she describes in loving detail. Wow. Okay. So it's like, you know, a couple of societal outcasts who are privy to, you know, the wonders of cannabis become the weed guides, the weed mentors for Maya Angelou. Cool. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think that they probably, you know, we all see those people in our lives who you can just tell are carrying trauma and pain, you know, and sometimes they're perfectly nice, seemingly upbeat adjusted people. people. Yeah, sure. adjusted people. And, and you know, I'm sure they recognize, they, they invite her over for this. So um, uh, the two women, one is named Johnny May and the other is named Beatrice, um, invite her over. And this is her describing it in her book. Let's have a little griffa before dinner. Johnny May gave an order, not an invitation. A little griffa. Griffa, you heard of griffa? Yeah, a little appetite. Uh, no, what, what, what is uh, what is Griffa? She's talking about weed. Griffa was a word for weed? In 1946, in, in the San Diego lesbian community at the very least. Interesting. Griffa. We're going to add that to the list with Austin Torpedo, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That's from the Willie Nelson episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, cool. All right, so some Griffa. Bring out the Griffa trays. Uh, All right. So, so... Uh, she turned to me. You like Griffa? Is, is this woman's asking her? To which I replied, "Yes, I smoke." Mm. The truth was, I had smoked cigarettes. Right. So she's trying to play that she's down. She's trying to be cool. You know what I'm saying? I think uh, a lot of people would be wouldn't readily be like, "Oh no, I'm totally square." You know, hanging out with you like down and cool lesbian prostitutes. You know, clearly. Smoke lots of reefer. Because they would have been like, you got any griffa? And she'd be like, no. And they'd be like, be a lot cooler yeah. if you did. <laughs> <laughs> that conversation has been had like 18 billion times <laughs> in human history. 
Yeah, that but was the first conversation about about weed ever. It was like, <laughs> do you have cannabosum? Yeah. <laughs> Someone's like, no. And you're like, ah, it would be much cooler if I did. Indeed. Jesus. <laughs> Here's some sage, yeah. Jesus. Cal- Perhaps if you... Calamus. But- uh, if you look at it the right way. But yeah, so anyhow, my okay. angel is about to get so lit. She's like, okay, the truth was I had smoked cigarettes for over a year, but never marijuana. I, I was prepared to refuse anything else they offered me, so I didn't feel I could very well refuse the pot. Ah, okay, cool. So she feels like, you know, you got to be a good guest. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sleep with them, right. so I should at least smoke weed with them. At least. That's, uh, okay. Um... I inhaled the smoke as casually as if the small brown cigarette I held were the conventional commercial kind. No, no, don't waste the griffa. Hand it here. Try it like this, is one of the other women. Okay, so she's holding it between her two fingers like a cigarette. Yeah, she's in a Parisian cafe, daydreaming, thinking of Sartre, looking out the window. that sachet hand going. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, And these ladies are like, no, this is not how this is done. No, they're like we don't. It's nineteen forty. We don't have a lot of griffa, right? To so go around. What is the way they wanted to smoke it? They wanted right. to do the perfect symbol with their hands. <laughs> uh, they're just saying like, inhale that shit, hold it in, like hold it in essentially. Like, yeah, hold it. In. Yeah. So, uh, get back in Maya Angelou. Uh, I opened my throat and kept my tongue flat so that the smoke found no obstacle in its passage from my lips to my throat. It tore the lining off my tonsils, made my nasal passages burn like red pepper, and choked me. While I coughed, gagging, those silly bitches laughed. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, weed was not the clean, you know, absolutely pristinely grown product you see now. It was probably like some mass-produced swag. You know what I mean? That that they're smoking. So, sure, it's going to burn, probably. First hit of weed. I mean, after smoking tobacco, I feel like weed is actually, you know, pretty chill on your throat and stuff but clearly she had a reaction well she's trying to hold it and clearly she smoked cigarettes a few times like she's not like i'm a smoker and uh you know now she's trying to hold it in yeah so um, she coughs up a lung she coughs up a lung rookie um, style rookie <laughs> <laughs> uh and so those uh, um, she's gagging while those silly bitches laughed yeah wouldn't they do anything for me no Beatrice rescued the joint and sucked in the smoke, puffing out her already fat cheeks to bursting while her lady love was busily engaged in rolling another stick of tearing fire. Ah, wow. So they're like ready to, you know, they're doing it California style, you know, like before the first joint is finished, they're rolling the second one. And she's about to, I'm guessing, feel the effects if she's going to get high her first time. Yes. And she, uh, um... You know, they they grabbed it right out of her hand because she's having this coughing fit. Right. So I like that. They're not wasting anything. They're happy to share. Yeah. I'm not going to let you just no cough waste. that away. We okay. just precious. So before the cough stopped shaking me, I had decided I would get even with them. They were lesbians, which was sinful enough, but they were also inconsiderate, stupid bitches. I reached again for the marijuana. Okay, here's where I'm going to put in that little record scratch sound. So she hates him. She's like, oh, my God, like, you know, you jerks tricked me. And now she's just 
sizing up some sort of revenge for these ladies, like, you know, getting her lit for the first time. So initially things are bad. This is starting out to be like, you know, a rough cannabis experience. Starting out to be a rough cannabis experience. And I, and and uh, we definitely need to know uh, later in her life, Maya Angelou was an outspoken advocate for gay rights and for gay marriage. Yeah. So, because she refers, you know, she refers to the, they were lesbian, which, which, which was, was simple enough. enough. Yeah. Which and is it, it, she's writing from the perspective of the eighteen-year-old girl she was then. Yeah. Exactly. And and that I think is is understandable. You know, it's like I think it's obvious when you see the you know the open-mindedness and perspective of her work that she's not. You know what I mean ultra-religious or homophobic <laughs> as a result of that, right? But yeah, you know, at the same time, you got to look at where people come from. And, you know, obviously this is, uh, you know, one of the first experiences that was going to open some doors for her. So let's see where it goes. Let's see where it goes. So um, it gets into, so the, the, they go to, they start to have dinner. The food was the best I'd ever tasted. Every morsel was an experience of sheer delight. I lost myself in a haze of sensual pleasure. Oh, and they, and they could have been eating like spam on toast too. <laughs> because when you're stoned, or when you're first few times you're stoned and you eat stuff. I remember one of the first times I was stoned, I was with my brother and a bunch of his friends, you know, I was like older kids. And we were eating like very doughy homemade pizza and like we would just describe different types of foods. Like we'd say, like imagine it's a donut, and it would and it would just taste like everything. It'd be like imagine it's lasagna, and it would just taste like that. You know, and I think it's like it makes eating like a more whimsical experience. So, so yeah, she's. I wonder what she's eating though. Oh, that also reminds me of when and that uh, Bang Appetit when we had the miracle fruit. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh my god, the fucking flavor hallucinogen. Yeah, what was that like? You did I didn't get to do it. Yeah, it's like it makes uh sour things really sweet. But it, it is intuitive how, you know, you can taste the way that it's doing stuff to your taste buds, you know what I mean? And I think salty stuff tasted different as well. It was pretty cool. It was a pretty interesting thing. I wish there was like a crazier taste hallucinogen out there that would like, you know, I don't know, make like paper taste like you know, brownies. It's calamus. Yeah, it's called calamus, and <laughs> it's in the fuck, Bible. Fuck, it's in the Bible. Okay, so, <laughs> so anyhow, my angel. The food was the best I ever tasted. Every morsel. She loves it. She's loving it. And this is, you know, remember, this is this person who's who's carrying all this pain in her day to day life. Yeah. So like, sort of, she's having a like a goofy good time, but internally, there's a repair happening or initiating. You know what I mean? Yeah, For I someone who's extremely traumatized. Um, I lost myself in a haze of sensual pleasure, enjoying not only the tastes, but the feel of the food in my mouth, the smells, and the sound of my jaws chewing. Uh, Beatrice, one of the women says, she's got a buzz. That's her third helping. Hey, you want to catch a buzz, <laughs> Hepcat? <laughs> the, the terminology from this time is amazing. Well, that's why they're, you know, uh, anything that's underground develop slang. Yeah. And we're a long underground. You know, I love all mm -hmm. the jazz slang of the oh, 30s, yeah. like Vipers and Reefer and, you know. Right. And then also the more regional things, insular, sort of pre-internet weed culture terms, like how in some places you call it a carb, a little hole yeah. in the pipe. Some places you call it a shotgun. You know what I mean? I'm sure there's like other terms for it. W different words for blunts. 
The reason that there's so many words for weed is, you know, I think is because like prohibition, obviously, you know, you need code. But then also because it's all these disconnected microcultures developing their own terminology for stuff. You know what I mean? That's like, it's kind of cool. And also because stoned people just love wordplay. You know what I mean? And they try to slap it on you and, and maybe pun shame you. A little bit, and I'm looking, <laughs> looking across the table at hey, my I'm illustrious co-host. I'm very supportive of your puns. All right, man, <laughs> I know. you know it. You know I, I support. I know. We your came pun. to terms. Your punner, uh, but that that wordplay, you know, that goes that goes back. Baudelaire talked about that in one of his books. Yeah, uh, that you know, he he was talking about how he'd meet, he'd get stoned with people. And they'd be able to keep up with him on wordplay when normally he ran game on them. Cause, yeah. Because he was Baudelaire. And you know what, man? Like, okay, look, you know, Lewis Carroll was like fucking lit. You know what I mean? There's a lot, like a lot of famous writers that were like super lit. And if you look at like rap music and its formation, now look, a style of music that in in being like almost like an evolution of like jazz culture in some way, it's like, you know, it's, it's super, uh, you know, like, connected with drugs, you know what I mean, in general. And I think that the the love of wordplay or the dynamicism within it is, like, fueled by smoking weed. I, I, I rapped when I was young for, like, a long time with, like, a band, you know what I mean? And definitely, you smoke a bunch of weed and your mind just starts working that way. Like, you know, the English language is not quite expressive or detailed, sort of specific enough to, you know, describe what you feel when you're stoned. So it's almost like your brain starts reorganizing the language in the most interesting way. You know what I mean? And that's how this stuff comes about. Yeah, make those connections. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll, we'll continue. So uh, I looked up to see, that you know, so she's like, she's got a buzz on. It's her third help and she's just chowing. She's now lost her surroundings Maya Angelou and she just can't believe how good this food tastes and and so these she says she's got a buzz that's her third helping pulls her out of it I looked up to see the two women looking at me and laughing their faces seemed to be mostly white teeth staggering inside dark lips they had no idea that they were so strange looking remember like the first time you get stoned yeah, people look bugged like, out to you look at people's ears <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> They're so weird. Why no, is everyone don't make any sense? <laughs> yeah, so she's in that place. I laughed at their ignorance, and they probably thinking themselves to be laughing at mine joined me. Oh, so they're like chuckling along, like ha ha ha, yeah, like she's laughing at them. <laughs> uh, apologies if I just blew out the mic. Every no, no, it's all good. And she's having like a fear and loathing moment, essentially. Yeah, they're all laughing. Um, when I remembered how they were ready to let me choke to death and how I vowed to get them, the tears rolled down my cheeks. That was really funny. Uh, they didn't know what I was thinking, and I didn't know what form my revenge would take. Wow, so she's still feeling vengeful. Okay, wow, my Angelou, damn, the beast within. So, like, literally, <laughs> you're, you're still, you know what I mean? Like, no, despite being, like, stoned for the first time, completely removed from the situation, like, you know... And they just, still, served, they just served you a delicious dinner, whether it was spam oh or yeah, whatever. Oh, yeah, and you loved eating. it. Oh, you loved it just now, Maya. Right? It was delicious. <laughs> and now you still you still are so angry. Wow, dude. That is buck wild. All right. So, I mean, I'm hoping she comes around at some point. I'm going to just tell you, no spoiler, buckle up. Yeah? Oh, boy. If Maya's got you a little shook with this, buckle the fuck up. Oh, my God. Okay. So, uh... Let's have some sounds, Beatrice uh, said and got up from the table. 
we were by magic back in the murky living room. So she's like, I don't even really. One minute we were eating dinner. Right. Time is just <laughs> yeah. shifting around now. Um, Johnny May stood putting records on the player. She turned to me as the first record began to play. You said you're studying how to dance. Do us a dance. Uh, I couldn't explain that I didn't do dancing alone to music. So she's like studying ballet oh, at okay. this point. So they're like, show us what you got. Yeah. Basically, and one kind of interesting thing in the book, in this description is, uh, Maya Angelou talks about how at the time, if you knew how to play music, or you knew how to dance, or you knew how to do something, and you were at people's house, they would be, be like, like, could you play some songs? Yeah. Because we have no way to listen to music. Right, there's no other entertainment yeah. or anything. Holy crap. And so she's like, you know, not exactly feeling like she feels like, dancing right then but she's like well Obliged. it makes sense that people would do that sure yeah um so so i decided to dance for my hostesses the music dipped and swayed pulling and pushing i let my body rest on the sound and turned and bowed in the tidy room the shapes and forms melted until i felt i was in a charcoal sketch or a sepia watercolor whoa okay so she's like now tripping out she's dancing for her hosts and she's she's totally and, lit. She's like yeah. completely just like being transported into other places. And I'm sure like, you know, the physical activity and like, you know, the blood rushing to her brain uh, is probably making her more lit by the second. Yeah. I remember getting pretty antic the first time I got high. Yeah. You know what being I mean? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I went in a mosh pit right after the first time I got high. I think I saw like System of a Down playing. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, okay, anyhow, okay. so she's lit, she's dancing. She's lit, she's dancing, and she's feeling free, you know. For the first time yeah. in a long time, perhaps. Yeah, that's something I can relate to from the first time I smoked. Feeling, feeling liberated. Like a certain kind of liberation. Um, but, but, is she still plotting revenge? Oh my God. So, <laughs> that very night, Angelou signed on to rent the women's house and serve as their madam. Oh, as their madam? Yeah, or, you know... Uh, oh, like as their, like, sort of, like... Uh, prostitution ad liaison. Administrative, yeah, like, uh, for, the, for this entrepreneurial enterprise, basically. Interesting. Okay, so she's like, we can all make money together. We can all make money together. She'd been saving up some money. She was thinking about opening a hamburger stand. Um, and, uh... She's now, like, why not do this? Yes. Yeah. So what happens in the story, you know, I had to condense the story a little bit. She she, <clears throat> she goes into the bathroom at one point um, to kind of like collect her thoughts. Yeah. And that's when she comes up with the idea, hey, wouldn't it be great? Like she thinks they're not that good at the business part of being uh, sex workers. Right. They could and be making more money. They could be making more money and she'd, she'd do well by them. Right. Not bad. And uh, yeah, I'm guessing like, you know, opening a burger joint is like, Look, food service is a risky business, you know? In the prostitution business, there's endless demand, let's just yeah. say. So, um, while arranging prostitution for them, well, this also, it gives her time to read and, and do her dance study. You know, and of course, she goes on to become a best-selling author and a uh, dancer on Broadway. That is not to say that this is the only route to make your dreams come true. 
Right, um, right, right. But, but this is what she's doing with her time. Mm. Interviewed later in life, she explains why she wrote so honestly about this incident and many other things. I thought this was important to include. Um, I wrote about my experiences because I thought too many people tell young folks, I never did anything wrong. Who? Me? Never. I have no skeletons in my closet. In fact, I have no closet. They lie. <laughs> That's great. They lie like that, and then young people find themselves in situations, and they think, "Damn, I must be a pretty bad guy. My mom or dad never did anything wrong, you know." So these kids can't forgive themselves, and they can't go on with their lives. See, that's a really interesting thing. You know, I think a lot of people draw a line between their adulthood and their youth as a time when they are rebellious and experimental and idealistic, but I say you should never stop being rebellious, experimental and idealistic, right? It's like, how can you leave that just for your youthful self? You know, why not continue that journey beyond that point, right? And it's like, you know, and in fact, people come out of it, you know, and admonish younger people for using drugs or, you know, whatever things, Deferred as like indiscretions, you know what I'm saying? But like, yeah, no, that's uh, that's a really, that's kind of a beautiful sentiment, you know. Uh, so eventually, uh, Maya Angelou walked away from working as a madam and went back to waitressing, but her lifelong love affair with Mary Jane was just beginning. Ah, oh. so life as a madam, I mean, you know, cannabis was there at a pivotal point, turning point, started a whole new career for her at the time. Uh, but there's more to come. Yeah, a whole new way of seeing the world. I think what happened is, you know, she understandably turned very inward. Then all of a sudden she's like, this food's amazing. This music's amazing. Weed's amazing. Her brain's turned on. Yeah, these prostitutes are amazing. Maybe I should be their madam. Yeah. And then over time, she's like, maybe that's not the right path for me. Sure. Still going to love music. Still going to love dancing and food and, and literature. But leave She's out of managing sex workers. Yeah, she, she taps out of that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but not taps out. Of Mary Jane. Right. Um, and here's her writing about it. And here's what really, when I was looking for the story, this is what really grabbed me and made me feel like, even though this isn't a big moment in history, it's a big moment for her. All right. Smoking grass eased the stress for me. I made a connection at a restaurant nearby. People called it Mary Jane, hash, grass, Gauge, weed, pot. Old, everybody loves to like, yeah. everybody who writes about pot, that's like. Black the, gold, yeah. Texas tea. <laughs> but isn't that like the lamest lead in oh, marijuana yeah. journalism? And, and, you know, fair enough to her for, you know, being early to this, I would guess, you know, than a lot of people. But yeah, it is a very cliche thing to be like, pot, weed, <laughs> trees, ganj. <laughs> All different names for one very remarkable plant. <laughs> Fuck you. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, out there, lazy journalism. And, and while we're at it, stop using one of the same three Getty images of weed. You know yeah. what I'm saying? There's, there's a lot of pictures out there by a lot of dope photographers, you know, who shoot weed. And you should find them. Most, most definitely. And but, the other one, then they flip it. It's... It's not just for Jerry Garcia and his hippie friends yeah. anymore. 
Yeah. And that's what comes after that in that story. And then they use weed puns that, frankly, Bean did first. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, you know what it is? It's the equivalent of like, I can use those words, but you can't. I yeah, can use yeah. those puns, These but you can't. These are our words. These are right? our puns. Yeah. I'll weed out this and that. You don't weed out anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, and they're weeding out the competition. Mm-hmm. You're like, they're expecting high profit. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Only Bean gets to do that. All right. Anyway, back to back to Maya. Okay. So just so you know, there's more than one word for pot, um, including uh, Griffa, which we're bringing back. Hashtag Griffa. Uh, hashtag Griffa moments in weed. Yeah, Griffa. Uh, I had absolutely no fear of using it. In the black ghetto of the 40s, marijuana, cocaine, opium, and heroin were only a little harder to obtain than rationed whiskey. Interesting. I believe it, man. You know what I mean? Forgotten corners of urban society at the time. You know what I mean? That's where uh, the black market thrived for these things. You know, But that's it's kind of like, in some ways, it's, you know... It's great in terms of cannabis is available and probably destigmatized to a degree. But, you know, obviously it's heroin, com- you know, like really ravaged those communities over many years. Yeah, well, it's it's like they put it with a shitty entourage. Yeah, yeah, like, right. Weed's awesome, but in the entourage, if the entourage is, is opium and cocaine. Thanks a lot, fucking Ainslinger. Yeah. Or, yeah, like, because, you know, because that, yeah, cannabis was categorized with all these other things. And even now, being becoming not illegal, it's being categorized with things like pharmaceuticals. Or it's being categorized with things like alcohol, illegal poisons in some sense. It's not like any of those things. How about this idea? How about the idea that... So she's saying, like, whiskey is rationed because it's World War II. But she's saying in, in the black communities of the time, urban black communities, you could find cocaine and opium and weed easily. Right. I think they let the weed be there because at the time they thought it was harmful. Right, right, right. Oh, wow. So they were like, fuck it. Let these community, like, you know, just have the poison. How interesting. Yeah. Because they bought their own fucking propaganda so hard. This is uh, Maya Angelou again. Uh, Although my mother didn't use anything but scotch... She often sang a song popular in in the 30s that at its worst didn't condemn grass and at its best extolled its virtues. Mm. I'm going to have to, of course, do some of my legendary singing. Sing it out. Dream about a reefer five feet long, mighty mez, but not too strong. You'll be high, but not for long if you're a viper. Dope. And what is Viper a word for? Viper was like a word for like a head in the jazz scene. Um, like somebody who was not just, just because you smoke, you weren't even necessarily a Viper. So so like it says, you'll be high. So let's, I'll break it down. Sure. It's, it's interesting. And, and there's a great version of this song that's in the public domain that we can put at the end of the podcast. Sure. Um, so dream about a reefer five feet long. Yeah, okay, you don't need any context. If you like weed, right. yeah. You've dreamt about a reefer five feet long at yeah. some point or seen one. Or, or it was, you dreamt about one three feet long and you told all your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, so that, that okay. one we, we got. Mighty Mez, but not too strong. 
What's Mez? Mez is this guy, Mez Mezro, who was a jazz musician in the 20s and 30s. He was close friends with Louis Armstrong. He was a good jazz, like, you know, like a guy you'd have in your band, but not that upper echelon jazz guy. Sure. But he was known for having the best weed, and he was a weed evangelist. Wow. He was a true believer. Like, we talk about true believers sometimes. Yeah, that's such a, that's like, that's such a similarity to, like, rap music that, you know, she's using, like, whatever, this referential language. You know what I mean? In some sense of, like, Oh, it's like, it's pretty esoteric. You wouldn't necessarily know who that is, but it's like, you know. If you know, you know. Yeah, exactly. If you know, you know. And if you know, then you feel good about knowing. And then this guy was, yeah, he was a legend in Harlem. And men's became slang for weed, too. Like, that's Um, props. It's one thing to get a strain named after you. But for weed in general, for good weed in general, to be called your name. Pretty badass fucking legacy. So you'll be high, but not for long if you're a viper. Right. So meaning if you can handle it, if you're like down. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is some strong shit. Yeah. But if you're a viper, yeah, you don't need me to. We would have been vipers, right? We would have been vipers. I don't think I could dress well enough to be a viper. It was like zoot. They were like the zoot suit guys. I could then. You have more Back time. then we would have gotten away with it. You know what I mean? It was a different thing. But uh, yeah, we're both sitting here in full tuxedos right now. <laughs> yeah, so, of course. Yeah, you know, every show. Every show we're sitting here in full full tuxedos. Mine cost $15,000. <laughs> Actually, it's the most expensive oh, thing I've ever owned. Yeah, yeah, That's why it looks I, cheap. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, going to say anything, but if you're going to... Yeah. Paint me into a corner. Ignore the mustard stain on the lapel. How could I? How could I? (laughs) I mean, we've shot four episodes. There's going to be a mustard stain. (laughs) All right. So so anyhow. She's singing this song. It's just just saying, like, even my mother, who didn't smoke weed, sang songs. So, like, get into that idea. There's more weed culture, you know, especially because it was black culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't think that there was all this weed culture in the 30s and 40s, and but but her mom, who didn't even smoke, would just you know sing this song around the house because she liked the beat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it goes on in this passage, and she describes how pop made her feel. This is my Angelou again. I learned new postures and developed new dreams. Whoa. Hmm. From a natural stiffness, I melted into a grinning tolerance. Walking on the streets became high adventure, eating my mother's huge dinners and opulent entertainment, and playing with my son was side-cracking hilarity. For the first time, life amused me. Whoa, okay, so she's really been lifted out of her kind of grim view of the world that she was talking about before. You know, it's totally transformed things for her. Yeah, wow. And, you know, it's like she doesn't realize that it's like chemically undoing you know, the damage of, of all the trauma she's experienced in her life. And it's slowly like, you know, engaging parts of her brain and parts of her being, you know, that were not being stimulated before. And all of a sudden, the world is a different place. You know, it makes me think of that uh, Simpsons episode, Weekend at Burnsies. You know, people remember it as the one where Homer smokes weed, season 13, right? So, in, in you know, in that episode, like, there's this 
you know, like montage of him being high and just walking around and like, you know, the world is like floating clouds and rainbows. And that's like a little bit ridiculous, you know, I think. But like, you know, I remember like there was definitely moments of my adolescence, childhood, which, you know, were dark and, you know, like were uh, traumatic in some respects. Right. And I definitely remember being a kid and smoking weed and really feeling, you know, transported to another place in some senses or, or at least having the realization that the place you're in is not so bad. You know what I mean? To be able to see the detail of the world in that way. It's kind of an amazing thing. You know what I'm saying? You ever had that experience? I, 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 yeah. I mean, that really resonates with me. And I think um, to parallel some of what is in the story today, like I had that first feeling of really being high as a profound sense of like the self you're carrying around every day is not the totality of who you are or who you could be. And that I'm going to lift, I'm giving eye to weed, which is fine. Yeah. I'm going to lift these restraints that you don't even realize you're carrying on yourself for five minutes Mm -hmm. so that you can feel that. And that's kind of like how her experience was that first time. And she's dancing and she lets go. And as she's saying, I'm doing this now over time, it's like you can start to like, okay, well, what is this restraint and what's it doing and is it helping me Mm -hmm. or can I change some shit about myself now that I've had some glimpse of how I might feel differently? Yeah. So markedly different from whatever other substances are out there, you know, available to the general public, which essentially do the opposite and numb out parts of your consciousness, you know? At best. Like if, mm-hmm. if you're if, if you're, they're not if, burning them out of your fucking head. <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're, you know, like socially inhibited and you have a few drinks and that makes you feel good and you loosen up and you have a good time, that's alcohol at its best. If you're dealing with trauma and pain with alcohol, numbing is the best you're gonna get. And the potential is a lot of really, really bad outcomes. It's not a medicine for trauma and pain. Yeah. You know, cannabis is a medicine for trauma and pain. Absolutely. And Maya Angelou is finding this out day to day. Yep. And um, she's, gets, she's got a system. She says, I disciplined myself. One joint on Sunday and one on the morning of my day off. Oh, God bless you, Maya Angelou. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, no, that is, you know, but that's, that is a solid regimen, though, for, you know, your average, you know, whatever that's like your working mom's regimen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Of like, all right, you know, when you yeah. get a break, you'll smoke some loud. And, you know, like, look, you and I, we smoke excessively. To, to a lot of people would say it's excessively, you know. But you smoke as needed. You know, I think your body tells you how much you need to smoke. I never felt the need to, like, discipline myself on how much weed I smoke. In a sense, I just smoke when I feel like it and don't when I don't, you know. I can suddenly stop and go on vacation and not smoke for six weeks. You know what I mean? It's a great thing about cannabis. It is. Um, and I think she's doing something interesting. She's being very intentional by saying, I'm going to smoke these two times a week. Like, think if you were doing therapy. Would you want to go to therapy six times a day, every day, like you smoke weed? Yeah. No, it's too much. She's saying, you know, because I'm sure in addition to all the good things she's feeling, 
she's having, you know, she's doing that trauma work. Yeah, and, sure. And so, you know, I think, you know, however much you smoke, it's good to be intentional. Think about, is am I smoking because I'm going to watch this movie and chill with my uh, significant other and that'll make it better? Am I smoking because I'm going to eat this meal? Um, or am I smoking because I, you know, like knowingly or unknowingly doing undoing a lot of damage, you know, that's been done to me psychologically. Yeah, that's a great reason to smoke. You should be aware that that's what you're doing and and then and you'll get the most out of it, I bet. Yeah. Okay, so she disciplines herself. We're not ready to join the Maya Angelou twice a week. We Yeah. Program, I don't <laughs> think. Not yet. I signed up for the newsletter, the yeah. e-newsletter, but uh, Yeah. <laughs> every week you'll get two joints in the mail. Yeah, I'm not on that diet yeah. yet. <laughs> It's like a gift box. Uh, the weed always had an intense and immediate effect. Before the cigarette was smoked down to roach length, I had to smother my giggles. Just to see the falling folds of the curtains or the sway of a chair was enough to bring me to audible laughter. After an hour, the hysteria of the high would abate and I could trust myself in public. Again, not a lot on TV back in these days. Though. Yeah. You kind of look at whatever and you're stoned and yeah. it's more interesting and you chuckle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, have you seen that new Netflix uh, series, The Sway of the Curtains? It's literally just like eight hour long episodes of Ho, 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 swing. ho. Yeah. I'm only on episode three. <laughs> I thought it could take a dramatic turn. You haven't All gotten eight- to the Venetian blinds no, uh, part? No. All right. Well, you might as well not watch it at this point. No. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, so not as much on TV. Right. But, you know, now she's this happy-go... Now, well, you know, not happy-go-lucky, but... So, so you she's know... Like, she's loving life a little more. Uh, so how does, how does she go from becoming one of America's most celebrated authors and political activists? How does she go on from... Uh, you know, being a madam and a single mother. Yeah. And, uh, uh, <laughs> but how um, indeed? How indeed. So uh, uh, as described in the next volume of her autobiography, uh, she was discovered by a talent agent while dancing in a San Francisco strip club. Um, that's when she changed her name from Rita to Maya and developed a Calypso singing act. Uh, so she sort of went from stage dancing to... Being a musician. Yeah, to being a musician and a, it's like a stage a show. performer. Of the time, yeah. Um, and as a performer, she travels widely. She meets all these people. She meets both uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X uh, before they were like nationally prominent figures. And uh, both of them and other people convince her to take these jobs working in the civil rights movement, um, the Southern Christian... Uh, Poverty Law Center? No. <laughs> um, Science Reading Room? <laughs> Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Although that's a dope reading room. Um, and she meets James Baldwin and other people, and they encourage her to write. And in her 40s, um, you know, she's still just uh, a completely anonymous figure until she writes the first uh I, you know, I know why the caged bird sings. Oh, wow. And that was her first publication, huh? I, I, I think she may have had like a, an essay published or other things. It was published. her first book. It really. was her first book and it was a sensation. She went from being 
uh, an unknown person to, you know, wow. a national sensation. And so this is someone who had an unlikely and varied and kind of rough path, a rough come up, you know, who ended up uh, publishing her first book to, you know, absolute instant legend status in her 40s. You know, I think that's really inspiring because, you know, a lot of people feel like if you don't write your first book or something, you know, when you're, you know, before you're 30, like, you know, you're you're suddenly you're never going to do it. But like Kurt Vonnegut, for example, was was very old, like was like late in life when he started writing, when he first published his first novel, you know, that guy's like a fucking legend, too. Um, yeah, it goes to show, man. You know what I'm saying? It's like you can really. Write a book when you're ready to write a book, when there's you've lived enough life to warrant one. Or, you know, keep keep at it, whatever. And it doesn't have to be a book, whatever you're... You know, I think cannabis keeps your dream alive for you. And yeah. I think one of the reasons that society has always loved to, like, down on uh, stoners or cannabis enthusiasts or whatever is, like, if you let your dream die, whatever it is... You hate that person who still holds on to theirs. Mm. And I think just some of that vibe that we get from the larger society is like, who who are you to dare? Uh, whether it's your dream for yourself or it's just the dream of like a better world or a chiller world or just a better way to like be humans. They don't like it. Not once you've given it up for yourself. And I think, you know, getting to Maya Angelou and I know why the cage bird sings it's like that title is hers to explain or not explain mm -hmm. and it's i'm sure about many many things mm -hmm. but i know as a cannabis uh person i relate to that idea our culture has been caged literally and figuratively and our culture has also produced so much wonderful art and life and vibe mm -hmm. yeah and you know my interpretation of that metaphor is that you know it's the caged bird that sings, right? It's like, it's difficulty, it's, you know, strife that in a lot of ways leads to inspiration, you know, and leads to great art and great sort of like reactive, creative works, you know what I'm saying? And like, you know, she's clearly evidence of that. I think a lot of black art, maybe like, you know, of a huge majority of black art in the United States draws on, you know, some... Uh, sort of difficulty, some sort of strife, you know, and is like reacting to that in some way or showing resilience in the face of that in some way. Jewish humor too. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's uh, another another aspect of that same thing. Yeah, part. totally. And I think the stoner humor, the stoner uh, worldview is born of that. Yeah, the, the the sort of like, you know, having to deal with the absurdity of what you increasingly are realizing in your life is, you know, such folly, like the, you know, prohibition of cannabis. The ironic thing about it is like, you know, the more you engage with psychedelics, the more you realize, you know, like how fucked up it all is. And yet, you know, you have to laugh about it because... That's the world we live in. You know, we happen to be, you know, like I always say is we happen to exist at the one time in history when cannabis is going from illegal to legal in like, you know, like uh, in, a, in a major country. You know what I mean? It's like, it's kind of crazy to be in, in, at, in that place at that time. You know what I mean? And on this path. And on this path. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, that's really cool. Maya Angelou, 
you're awesome. Rest in peace. You know, like you're a great avatar for cannabis and just a great artist in general. You know, I, I don't think anybody can deny the impact, uh, you know, that Maya Angelou has had on, uh, you know, American literature, you know, world literature. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a nice little review if you're so inclined. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud at at GMIWH Podcast. And please give us a tweet or a post if you like the show. And with that, we'll close it out. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. that's the show folks thanks so much for listening and if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on patreon you can put five on it at great moments in and that would really help us as we research write edit and publish a new episode every weedness day great moments in weed history is written produced and performed by me david beanenstock aka bean Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.